the reason that pre-roll factories smell so good is they've basically atomized all of their terps into the air and they're not in the product. So that got me thinking about, well, how could I fix that? So the best way to do it is to take the strains I like, extract them and try to get the purest extraction I can that represents the breadth of the plant, and then combine those together and put that on the dried chopped flour. And it's really worked out. This is the Cannabis Enigma, cutting through the smoke to have informed, serious conversations for regular people. Hi, I'm Alana Goldberg. And I'm Dr. Cody Peterson. What have you got for us today, Cody? This one was fun. It's Michael Backus from Perfect Blends in Southern California. Michael Backus has a background in writing about terpenes and in cannabis pharmacy, a book he wrote. And he's also now concocting some cool stuff up in one of the biggest cannabis markets in the world. Right. So I think we actually tried some of his concoctions from Perfect Blends when we were waiting in a line for an after party at MJ BizCon in Vegas last year, right? Oh, yeah. We were in the line. We were standing there. Well, you'll hear about this in the episode, but I heard this voice from Clubhouse and look at that. It was Michael Backus. Right. So I think at that time, what we tried, they've actually got three different product types, which I find really interesting, all flower based. And what we tried were their mini pre-rolls. So they have these tiny little pre-rolls. I'm waving around with my hands, which of course the listeners cannot hear. But you know, you all know what a mini pre-roll looks like. So they've got mini pre-rolls, which are nice. They're strong. They actually recommend that these pre-rolls are each three doses. They're beautiful packaging and marketing. We'll put a link in the show notes. So I highly recommend you all go and take a look at that. So they've got these mini pre-rolls. They've got a little pot, which I think is with maybe one or two grams of ground flour, which comes with a one-hitter. So super easy, kind of portable, discreet way to consume. And then the third, I think, is probably the most innovative. They have these pre-rolls joints, which have a filter, or sometimes known as a crutch or a roach is what we say in Australia. <laughs> Otherwise known as a crutch. Exactly. A crutch, not to be confused with crutch, has happened before with my Australian accent. Anyway, so not only does it have one crutch, it has two crutches, these pre-rolls, one on each end, and they have a little pair of scissors that come in the pack. So you can choose what size joint you want, which is great if you're sharing or if you want to just have like, I don't know, a few hits while you're walking the dog at night. So really innovative product types. And I think potentially more interesting than that is they have effect-based products. So, for example, one of their products is called Happy Camper. And what I love about this is that the name actually gives you some sort of indication of the effect you can expect, unlike, you know, Alaskan Thunderfuck, for example. Uh, Well, I hope that doesn't happen to me. But Happy Camper sounds pretty enjoyable, to be honest. And what's really cool about their Happy Camper is they're using strain-specific extraction processes. So yeah, they're doing flour like Alana had mentioned, but they're also extracting that same strain or cultivar, and then they're re-infusing that extract into the blend, right? They're blending it to be consistent with significantly higher terpene ratios because that's Michael Backus's jam. Terpenes and terpene blends are really what he focuses on. And if you've read his book, you would know that. So it was a really interesting interview. I was really glad to hear from him. And I'm now nudging him. I'm like, hey, man, you better let me check out that lab of yours. I just think I need to, you know, lay eyes on it. Yeah, we'll get you in there at some point. 
if you're listening, perfect plans. Cody wants to go to the lab. <laughs> cool. I think really like just to kind of continue on that point, the reason this is important is because if you find something you like, you're going to be able to buy the product again and expect the same effect rather than having to start from scratch every time you go to the dispenser. It's so important to try to deliver a consistent product. And because cannabis is a agricultural product and there's a lot of turnover in the dispensary, it can be hard to know whether you're going to get a consistent experience, even if the name is the same from a different cultivator, the name of the strain. So one thing that Perfect is aiming to do, and I think they're doing a pretty good job, is to try to deliver a more consistent experience. And you'll have to try it for yourself if you're in Southern California and let us know if you think it works. I guess you could be in Northern California too. So California in general. <laughs> All right. So let's hear from Michael. Remember to stick around after the interview. We've got our regular segment with our co-producers on this podcast with Americans for Safe Access. And we'll be popping that on for you after the interview. Let's get to it. Michael Backus, welcome to the Cannabis Enigma podcast. How are you today? I'm really good, Cody. How are you? Oh, I'm so happy to have you on here. You know, the last time I saw you, Michael, we were standing in line to a, a party at MJ BizCon. And I'm standing there and I hear this guy talking. And I'm like, I know that voice. And I'm like, from Clubhouse. So now I'm looking around. I'm like, all right, which little circle face do I know here? And then, of course, I have to look up near straight up to see you there because you're significantly taller than me. Uh, but really happy to have you on here and glad we found some time that worked for both of us. Yeah, for sure. So I got to be honest, I really want to talk about cannabis, but I can't because I have to first ask you about what I know about your past. How did you go from Spider-Man to being an author of a book about cannabis terpenes. I know there's probably a lot in between there, but kind of tell me a little about what you were doing with Spider-Man and how you got there. Right. Well, it's not a book. Well, let's just clear that. It's not a book about cannabis terpenes. It's basically about medical cannabis. And so... Yeah, cannabis pharmacy. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You're absolutely right. And I've read the good majority of it. And I love how you break down the chemovars or cultivars or strains, whichever word you choose to talk about. But. But yeah, so the thing was, I mean, I'd used cannabis when... I was in high school and college. In Southern California? No, no. I went to college in Indiana. I went to a high school in Tucson, Arizona. And then I didn't use it for years. But I had a kind of migraine headache that precluded me taking a lot of conventional migraine medication because it increased my risk of a stroke. Because I have stroke runs in my family. And so my neurologist said, you know, you probably shouldn't take any of these or got derivatives or any of this stuff. Definitely. Don't want to take these regularly. You're putting yourself at risk of this stroke. Right. And so I said, but you could try cannabis. It does seem to work for some people. Oh, I got to meet me, this neurologist, Michael. And what was interesting was he thought, and he, correctly, that it would, I get classical migraine. So it has a prodome. You know, you, you know it's coming. You get this aura and, you know, visual disturbances and all that. And the thing was, is that I found that a little bit of cannabis, and it could be, it's really interesting because it, it seems to work equally well with THC and CBD. Both of them have a tendency to interfere with the progression of the aura so that it doesn't end up becoming a headache. So I may have to deal with 15 minutes of visual disturbance, but it'll subside and it won't devolve into a headache. And so I thought, wow, this is really interesting. And this was right when the first dispensaries were opening up in Southern California. And it turned out that 
I was living in a house in Silver Lake and moving to another house with the guy who owned the house. I was going to live at a place he was buying in Eagle Rock. And this guy from Berkeley came in, Don Duncan, who had helped start Berkeley Patients Group and was going to open up LAPCG in Los Angeles. So these are collectives and grow operations that are growing a pretty significant amount of cannabis for the community, right? Right. So anyway, and I didn't really know much about dispensaries at that point. And suddenly this guy shows up who's about to open one. So I got really into it. I got into it, like diving deep because for the first time, I could actually get consistent sources of cannabis, which I never had when I was a you know, in college, and really got it in Indiana. Yeah, and got into this idea of different chemovars. I mean, that word wasn't even being used yet, but I got so into it that people started to say, you know, you should open up a dispensary. So I did. I opened up a dispensary in Eagle Rock in 2006 with a couple of partners called Cornerstone Research Collective. And we started out trying to be more evidence-based. And at the time, that was really challenging because there just wasn't a lot of information published. What year is this, just for reference? 2006. 2006, yeah, you just said that. Okay, yeah, I mean, we're just discovering the TRP channels that are uh, involved in maybe the headache effects of cannabinoids. Like, we're very early on in what we can do, and we still have a long way to go, but sorry. Yeah, but what was interesting, though, so what happened was I got into it, I started a dispensary, and answering so many questions and getting online trying to find research papers to read to address the needs of my customer base. I really got into it. And then I got approached by some folks from England who had a book deal with a New York publisher to do this. They had a title, Cannabis Pharmacy, and they wanted somebody to write the book. And a friend of mine recommended me and I ended up writing the book too. Nobody knows this plant better than this guy, Michael, I know. you got He'll talk to you about this. Yeah, I mean, at that point, I was really into it. And also because I had access to so much cannabis, and I'd really become obsessed with finding the best cultivators in California. I love that. And this was really early times. I'm sure that there was even more like sort of lineage and less kind of mixing between this very large, robust market, especially if you go back to early 90s. Well, I mean, the thing is, is that the truth is, in 2006, they were all LCM strains. They were all these lemon and caryophylline myrcene strains, the Kush strains. And you'd go into a dispensary, and I mean, there was a dispensary in West Hollywood that probably carried a hundred and around a hundred varieties of cannabis, and over three quarters of them were Kushes: Master Kush, Pure Kush, OG Kush, Baba Kush. You know, and the thing is, is that there is a difference. I mean, those are all LCM strains, but they have different predominance in the terps. And so, you know, OG, the best OG has a tendency to be very citrus. The best Baba Kush has a little bit of that citrus, but what it's, it's very incense forward. So it has that incense probably coming from alpha fusine, which is a terpene that nobody tests for because it eludes off the chromatography machine so quickly. Yeah, I think that's one of the really interesting things about when we're talking about what we know about the terpene profile versus, say, like the aromatic profile of cannabis is is like we're only we only see what we're testing for, right? And we have limitations in what we actually are able to deduce. Yeah, nobody's testing for esters. Yeah, and the thing is, there's a ton of them, and they're important to the smell profile and and potentially towards the pharmacologic profile. Yeah, 
but we don't really know very much about these terpene esters. And I guess for the folks listening, and I think this is a really cool kind of science detour for us to jump on. You know, we say terpenes in cannabis, but really we're talking about a, a class of molecules called terpenoids. If you zoom out and look at Mother Nature, this stuff is everywhere. Absolutely. And the thing is, is that our understanding of terpene pharmacology in humans is ridiculously limited currently. And the thing is, is that, you know, you see, you walk into dispensaries and you see these terpene posters up on the wall. It's antifungal, you know, anti-inflammatory. And what's funny is that it's like this is from animal testing or from cell studies and extrapolating. Essential oils. Yeah. And extrapolating this stuff to people is really, really tough to do. And as a matter of fact, it's gotten to the point where now I consider a lot of terpenes to be what I call windowpane terpenes. And so, and because you're seeing through them to the cannabinoids behind them. So what it is, is that certain terpenes, I don't have much pharmacological effect at all. And what you're really feeling is you're feeling the cannabinoids, in particular THC. I mean, it's really interesting to see a lot of these sativas out there. When in fact, they're almost indistinguishable from taking pure THC as far as what you feel. And if you A, bead them with THC, you wouldn't know as much of them. Is this suggesting like limonene is one of these less pharmacologically active? No, I think limonene is pretty pharmacological. I think that terpinoline is probably less pharmacological than we think. And it's classically associated with a lot of sativas. Yeah, I don't see it too much, though, right? Like, it's not the most common terpene floating around. Well, it was. It isn't anymore. But if you look at... So the thing is, is again, that's because of the inbreeding cannabis. But, you know, all the Thai that came in from Southeast Asia, most of that was terpinoline dominant. A lot of Colombian was terpinoline dominant. But by the time it got to the States, smuggled, terpinoline was evaporated. It was gone. And so those varieties became associated with caryophylline effects because caryophylline is what survived the smuggling. Ah, uh, makes sense. Especially like, I mean, even just thinking back to like, let's say when I first got my hands on some cannabis in 2006, let's say the first time I, this was crap. Like you wouldn't even accept looking at this in modern today. No one would smoke it. And that was all that we had. You know, of course, I was getting the bottom of the barrel in a small town, Pennsylvania. But the point is, is, you know, outside of places like California, it was real slim pickings around what cannabis was available. And frankly, the cannabis the government was growing wasn't doing too much better. Until, of course, recently, there was a big chain in which growers can grow for use from NIDA, the National Institute on Drug Abuse. Right. I mean, the truth is, University of Mississippi had a lot of great genetics because they got all the seeds that were from seized marijuana. And there was a lot of really good marijuana seeds. And so the thing about it is, is that their numbers were low as far as THC content. But here's the thing, and I think this is one of the biggest misconceptions, is that while that cannabis back in the day was lower in THCA, it wasn't necessarily lower in terpenes. All right. Now, a lot of the indifferently smuggled commercial weed that smelled like hay, well, clearly didn't have a lot of terps. But the good stuff from Hawaii or from California, Oregon, Colorado, from back in the day was very terpy, even though it wasn't particularly high in THC. That makes complete sense to me and does still line up with my experience at the time that I maybe did get that higher end, even let's say like BC Bud or Indoor Grow that was happening at that time. 
And, and I agree. We've seen this increase. It makes sense. We haven't been breeding the plant for high terpene production until at least recently when everyone started getting on the terpene train, right? For a long time, especially the illicit market was focused, you know, not certainly the legacy growers per se, but like, you know, the underground market was growing for THC because that's what sold. That's what worked. Right. But one thing that is interesting is, is that my contention is, is that we put terps aside and started chasing THC content. Because, I mean, you watch, even in the time I've been in the business, the average THC content has gone from around 15 to close to 30 now. And the thing is, is that as Raphael Meshulam says, there's the stinginess of the plant, which means that the plant's a factory. It only has so many metabolic resources to create these secondary metabolites. And so if you, if you shove everything towards THCA, well, one of the results is going to be less terpene content or terpenoid content. And so the thing is, is that, I mean, I'll tell you, for years, the best-smelling cannabis I'd ever smelled was Kona Gold. That was in the late 70s, okay? And it was incredibly aromatic, incredibly aromatic. Like, you open a bag, and you'd smell it 100 feet away. I mean, it was really, really smelly. What I'm impressed with is the invisible bag you just opened to smell, Michael, was huge. That was a QP that you just opened up to smell for your... (laughs) Well, I mean, what's funny about that is when we got Kona from Hawaii, it actually came in in trash bags, like paperweights, because they didn't want it to mold up. And I don't know how they were smuggling. I think they were flying it in from Hawaii. But yeah, so it came, it came. You got a grocery bag full of Kona. And even then, it was crazy expensive. It was $200 an ounce in the late 70s. Wow, that's a lot of money back then. Yeah, that's like... That's like $1,000 an ounce today, really. And certainly, that's far more than anyone's paying pretty much anywhere in the country. And really, ever. I'd pay it for a corner goal today. Oh, look at that. Yeah, yeah. well, so that's the interesting thing. And maybe, you know, you seem to, to dabble in all of this. So what do we have today, right? So I go down the street and I find Jack Herrera. Is it Jack Herrera? Oh, yeah. Yeah, because I had Jack Herrera when it was first released in Amsterdam. And I've got a really good memory for these smells and flavors. So I guess what I'm asking is, I look around, right? And what can the consumer do? Is there anything in the book that consumers can do to kind of verify that this is Jack Herrera? Well, I mean, it's just really like put your money on brands that sell flour that do turp testing. So, I mean, it's very easy to learn how to read a turp test. And so you can actually, I can look at a turf test and tell you how it's going to smell. And with reasonable accuracy, I know I'm buying what I want to buy. If the pinene isn't there in your blue dream, it isn't going to be blue dream. If your terpenaline isn't there in Jack Herrera, it's not going to be Jack. I mean, if these are the terpenes that really... Right, the characteristic terpenes of those cannabis chemovars or you know cultivars. And maybe that's a good question, right? This came up in my writing just the other day. Cultivar and chemovar. What are these words that the listener might be reading on the internet? Or what's your take on them? Because, you know, these are not formally defined words in cannabis. A lot of what we're talking about is, you know, vernacular that's being developed or has been developed in silos, you know? So, yeah. So, I mean, cultivars are simply cultivated variety. And so, it literally, it's used in agronomy to discuss specific phenotype genotypes that are cultivated. Chemovars are ones that have the genes to express typically a particular cannabinoid profile and terpene profile. So in order to know if it's the right chemovar, I have to have an analytical test. 
it's kind of like in line with what you're suggesting is you need to line ourselves up with products. So our noses are really good. I mean, our noses are really good. I mean, the thing is, you know, before I had regular terp testing, I just relied on my ability to smell these chemovars and distinguish them. And I mean, if you put, you know, OG Kush, train wreck, skunk number one, a Northern Lights in front of me, I would never make a mistake. <laughs> He's sure. He can do the blind taste test, folks. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't even, you just learn it. And I mean, it's funny. I can recall the smell of train wreck. I can recall the smell of Bubba Kush. I know exactly what good Bubba Kush smells like. And so, you know, I always say the nose knows. You really do. You really do learn how to recognize these chemo bars because your nose is incredibly sensitive. I agree. The nose is the best tool that the consumer has right now, hands down. That's what we need to tell consumers to do when they can. But then empowering them for the future, right? Because Lord knows in-person is less common today and, and continues to fall out of favor. You know, it's correlating what you smell, especially when you freshly opened your cannabis jar and when it's new, and the terpene profile can be beneficial in trying to make those associations. So that's kind of something I recommend, particularly in that, you know, before you smoke it and forget. And check the date. So if you want to see if, if the name on the jar is going to align with what's in the jar, one of the things you can do before you open the jar is check the date. And so... See when it was packaged. No question. Because you lose a lot of these monoterps within 45 days after harvest. It's not taken care of, which means kept at reasonably low temperatures. You know, think wine cave temperatures around 48 degrees. The way I look at taking care of cannabis is basically treat it like produce because that's what it is. It's an herb, a fresh herb. So keep it tightly sealed in the dark in the vegetable drawer of your refrigerator, and it'll last a while. You know, it's not going to last forever, but it'll last a while. Yeah, I think that that's great advice. And, we, you know, we have articles on the topic. And, you know, the truth is, is all cannabis will start to degrade over time from THC into CBN and from the terpenes evaporating off. But that's slow. Yeah, pretty slow, especially under refrigerated. But generally, it looks to be like 10% a year, something to that effect at room temp. Right. But if you're keeping your like, stuff for more than a year... Oh, I'm not recommending it. I'm just suggesting this is what's happening. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm sure that people have some carts, some old carts sitting in the bottom of some drawer somewhere for years. <laughs> They're cracking out. So they bought it from your dispensary in Eagle Rock in 2007, and it's still in their nightstand. I wouldn't sell carts. There you go. I wouldn't sell carts. And the reason I wouldn't sell carts is the first ones, because I knew instantly that they were using PG and VG in these carts. I refused to carry And that's uh, propylene glycol and vegetable glycerin. And these are cutting agents often used with electronic cigarette devices or e-cigs, but the vape types. The truth is, at heat, you know, these things can make things you don't want to smoke. But the truth is, at heat, terpenes can turn into things that you don't want to inhale. And uh, Bob Strong at Portland State has done some really, really interesting studies about how a lot of these terpenes turn into polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, which are horrible things to inhale. Some of the worst atmospheric pollutants that are out there. And the idea of like sucking on something that's producing these because the temperature of the device is, let's say, over 800 degrees. And you don't want to like inhale too hard when you're smoking a joint. The thing is the fire cone, which is the cherry, you actually don't want to make that get white. You want to keep that, the way I say it is, you sip, you don't rip, okay? That goes for bongs, that goes for joints. And the reason is if you expose these herbal products to these high temperatures or these extracts to high temperatures, 
going to break them down into things you don't want to know. Yeah, all of these molecules at higher temperatures start to break down. And starting with THCA, which has to be converted, which is produced by the plant, THCA, and has to be converted to THCA. That, you guys know what I'm saying, the listeners, <laughs> to neutral THC. Anyway. Sip, don't rip. That's my slogan. Sip, don't rip. That's the takeaway. And that's to preserve the chemistry of what you're trying to get in you. Yeah. Terpenes that are behind the cherry and not go too hard. That's really great advice. And I love those practical tips that listeners can take with them. And I think it's just all really interesting, the vaporization temperatures that can be included. What's your take on, you know, best way to use a, an herbal vaporizer, like a dry herb? Do you like... I use the Storch and Bickle Mighty because it's got pretty good temperature control on it. And I always try to keep it below 400. And the thing about flower vaporizers is they... It's like smoking in ultra slow motion. So you, all you have to do is you just have to be patient. So what you're going to get is you're going to get a lot of the lighter volatiles first and the heavier things. Can add more. The aromatics and then later come the CBD or the THC or even, even some other products. Exactly. And so the thing is, is that, you know, you used to hear from people like, oh, man, you know, when I get done vaping, you know, I take the weed and I cook with it. Well. If you'd vaped effectively, there'd be nothing to cook with except some spent vegetable matter. And so the thing is, is that if you're leaving cannabinoids on your vape load, you haven't been patient enough in getting them off the vape load and into you. Okay, everyone, I have to confess something. Michael's talking to me right now, and I definitely have a dry herb vape collected where I'm going to water cure it and then extract it. Certainly, it sounds like Michael says there's a better way, and so folks will report back. Great. I love that. So you're very keen on this. What is, you wrote a whole book on cannabis medicine. What do we need to do? This is a passion project of mine. Obviously, for anyone who's listening, I'm very concerned that we're losing patients to the retailization of cannabis, and I want to make sure that they get their medical needs served. What is it that we can do? How do we build a better medical cannabis model? You wrote a book, Cannabis Pharmacy. Wow. Challenging. Very challenging question. And the reason is, is that, yeah, it's like, okay, once a tsunami has been triggered, how do you prevent damage from it? I mean, I think paying attention to the evidence and encouraging continuing research into the medical uses of cannabis, and also not overstating them. I mean, you know, we went through a phase with CBD. It's a perfect example of this, a craze. Yep, claims, craze, fad. Yeah, where people are claiming efficacy in treating all of these symptoms on thin evidence. I mean, it's really amazing because if you go to buy CBD and look at the doses that are recommended, they're usually a tenth of the dose that clinical studies are conducted with. So, you know, you look at these studies on CBD and epilepsy. I mean, they're not taking 10 milligrams. They can be taken over a gram a day of CBD. And nobody can afford to dose at the levels that are used in clinical studies. So that's really kind of a conundrum. Now, I do believe that there are different effects of these cannabinoids at different Dose level. Ratios. Yeah, well, not only ratios, but actually... High doses affect differently than low doses. The idea that something does one thing at one milligram and does a totally different thing at 10 milligrams. For example, THC at one milligram has a tendency to reduce feelings of anxiety, 
while if you give some the average person who's never done THC 20 milligrams, they're probably going to have an anxiety reaction. All right, very, very common. It's all over the literature. So it's, I think it's well understood. So you have these dual effects, ranges of effects, and I'm completely forgetting the term for it, but that's okay. I'll remember it five minutes after we finish. <laughs> no, I think you were getting to the fact that there's a lot to be said about using these cannabinoids for medical uses, but we need a lot more evidence. And currently what's been done, the pharma model, right, the studies that you kind of alluding to for CBD have really been done with mostly isolates and very little terpenoid content and very little even, you know, secondary cannabinoids. The best study results that we got really of any of these commercially available products, guess what? is a combo of two cannabinoids, and that's THC and CBD one-to-one, Sativex, which is a pretty effective medicine. But also that has terps in it, because those aren't made with isolate. It does have a little bit, but are they plant extract or are they added back in? Oh, completely. No, 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 no. Those are only, those are only plant extracts. So what those are is those are CO2 titers, all right? So it's a CO2 titer from a high THC plant and a high CBD plant. And then those are combined together to make the tincture Sativex. And so, yeah, they'll have sesquiterpenes. I mean, they're going to have monoterps too, because I have a lot of friends who, who extract monoterps from cannabis with CO2 and lock it and do it very well. Interesting. I guess it's interesting because it's not on the package insert of these products, which is a, it's a concentration. Well, no, but it's also that they didn't want to have to account for their behavior. And it's the big thing in, in natural product extracts. Is, is that you have to kind of limit what you're saying is the active. Interesting, for sure. And, it, you know, this isn't abundantly clear, even to this pharmacist, as he looks to the back of a product. For what it's worth, I don't have access to the package insert on Sativex, as it is not approved in this country, although it is approved about... But you can download it. It's up on uh, GW's website. And it's super easy to find. So, yeah. Cool. I will. All right. Well, what are you working on now, Michael? What is your passion project today? And what can people expect from you in the next one to two years? Any more writing? Or what are you interested in? Well, no, I'm working. I have a company called Perfect. And what we're doing is we're doing kind of terpene entourage based inhalable cannabis blends. So what I'm doing is I'm choosing chemovars of different cannabis varieties. I'm drawing half the crop. I'm fresh freezing the other half. I extract that fresh frozen material, get high terpene extract and THCA. And then I combine all these things together in a blend for a certain kind of trajectory. At Perfect, we have three products. We have Happy Camper, Pick Me Up, and Nightcap. And they do what they say. Happy Camper is designed to elevate mood and make everything a little absurd. Pick Me Up is to help you focus to work without discomfort. And Nightcap is to just get you to relax at the end of the day. That's been my primary focus. I'm also working on perfect blends. Perfect blends. I love that. This is like some sort of, like it's not a Frankenstein because you're taking its own strain and you're mixing it together. So this is your like... No, we're not doing anything weird. Your uh, extra sauce. It's your special sauce, but it's the cannabis's own sauce. It's like, it's really cool what you're doing. Well, here's the problem. I really wanted to make blended pre-rolls about almost three years ago. So I got some of my favorite varieties of cannabis, and I ground them and blended them and gave them to people. They loved them. And then I got the lab results. All of my monoterpenes were gone. So you just had sesquiterpenes, beta-caryophylline, some kind of a flat. 
Yeah. So what happens is when you're growing cannabis, the reason that pre-roll factories smell so good is they've basically atomized all of their terps into the air and they're not in the product. So that got me thinking about, well, how could I fix that? So the best way to do it is to take the strains I like, extract them and try to get the purest extraction I can that represents the breadth of the plant, and then combine those together and put that on the dried chopped flower. And it's really worked out. And what's great is we blend to a formula. So it's in a pretty tight range every time you get it. So you don't get this crop to crop variation. And that's the biggest consistency. That's the biggest thing, especially for medical. If you're going to use this to treat symptoms, it's really nice to know what you're getting this time is what worked last time. And that's been really hard in time. I couldn't agree more. That consistency is really challenging, especially for patients in the current system, because when you go to the dispensary, even if you like, I'm going to throw a name out here, I have no affiliation, Alien Labs, you could get, you know, either variety, depending on which place you go, they might not have it. It could have a totally different terpene profile, totally different cannabinoid profile, and you could get a different effect and you just spent $65 on 3.5 grams of cannabis and you don't even get the effect you're looking for. So I think what you're doing is brilliant. I think the way I describe it is if you walked into a pharmacy and the pharmacist said, well, this could be aspirin or it could be Valium. Here, you buy it. <laughs> you know, that would be unacceptable. Well, like this is probably a downer, but it, it might be a little bit of an upper. Sorry. <laughs> uh, it isn't precise enough for medicine. And the problem is in, in cannabis is often people will, they make excuses for the unacceptable range of variation. And there are really talented cultivators out there. There are really talented extractors out there. But there aren't a lot of people taking care of the products in the supply chain. And so you'll get stuff from a dispensary that's old, and you expect it to be fresh. And people need to check the dates on the products they're buying. It's really important. And one of the things we do at Perfect is we use some tricks to try to help stabilize those monoterpenes. And it took a long time to figure them out by leveraging things that the plant itself uses to help keep these compounds around. Okay, like a flavonoid or some sort of natural preservative. The no, plant I, I won't. Ready. I won't. No, 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 these are, these are trade, trade secrets. You don't have to tell me, but I could start listing off things in the plant. My favorite flavonoid, by the way, is anthocyanin because I just love the purple color in cannabis. So, yeah. So anyway, that's one thing I'm working on. I'm on the advisory board for the Emerald Cup. And so we're revising the rules for the Emerald Cup, which is the big California competition, kind of the Oscars. Should I go? Somebody told me I should go last year. I've never been. Oh, it's amazing. I feel like I should pay a visit. When Alana, um, our CEO, hears this, we got to encourage her to get me a Kenigma hat and send me on my way. I'll be a happy boy for three days. No, no. I mean, the Emerald Cup is, I've learned more at Emerald Cup about what constitutes high quality cannabis products than anywhere. I mean, it's really tough to do. And so in this year, we're doing, instead of, we're dividing up the flower categories this year to put cannabis in silos depending on the terpene dominance. There are eight basic superclasses of cannabis. So we're going to start to recognize those so that terpenaline gets judged against terpenaline. Trying to put them in their own expectation class, like so that, you know, you can't compare an uplifting strain to a sedating strain because that's apples to oranges. I like it. With the fanaticism, you know, the fanatic acceptance of the dessert strains now, you know, these wedding cakes. We want to encourage broader production 
of these other cultivars rather than the same problem we had a few years ago with everything was kush. Now everything's wedding cake. And so we want to get away from that. Birthday cake, regular cake, just plain cake. No cake. Cake. Yeah. <laughs> Cakeless. There it is. Cake piss. No, I'm just kidding. Everyone, Michael Backus, you are a wealth of knowledge. Is there anywhere that folks can find you or Perfect Blends that they should go before you sign off? Yeah, perfect-blends.com. That's an easy place. You can find me on Instagram. You can find the book on Amazon or any bookstore. That's Cannabis Pharmacy. All right. Well, Michael, until the next time we run across each other, I can't wait till I get to visit you in Los Angeles and see this this laboratory blending up these infusions, these self-infusions of cannabis chemovars. Can't wait to see it, my friend. Thank you so much for your time and be well. Thanks a lot, Kurt. Right, so we're here for our last ACER segment of season two, because this is indeed the last episode of the season. So I'm here with the executive director of Americans for Safe Access, Debbie Chergai. Hey, Debbie. Hi, how are you? Good, good. Good to talk to you, as always. So Debbie and I were just talking, and we were thinking a really nice way to wrap up the season would be to kind of hone in, you know, we're used to getting all these regulation and policy updates in this little ACER segment at the end of every episode, but what is ASA? And so we thought that there might be you know, some of our listeners, both in the United States and around the world, who are interested in hearing about ASA's mission and activities. And so I asked Debbie to kind of give us a bit of a rundown. Thanks. Well, yeah, a lot of people are surprised first to hear that Americans for Safe Access has been around since 2002. So this year, we're actually celebrating our 20th anniversary on not on 420, but on 419 is our actual birthday. Yeah, good timing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Happy birthday. Thank you. And so we'll be celebrating our anniversary this year, which also is going to include a yearbook, an anniversary yearbook that we're going to put out later this year, which is going to talk about all the advocacy efforts that ASA has done in the 20 years. We're going to have stories from patients and members and donors and people that have supported us in these last 20 years. So that's something definitely to look forward to. We're also going to be hosting our 10th National Medical Cannabis Unity Conference this year, where we'll be celebrating our birthday as well. That's a mouthful. Yes, it is. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, so ASA was founded in 2002. And our mission is to ensure safe and legal access to cannabis therapeutics and research. And for us, what that means, it's not just about passing a law. Everyone thinks that access means there's a law. And we know, and patients all around the country and the world know that it's more than just passing a law. We have to make sure that the laws and regulations actually work for the patient and actually work for the industry because the industry is the one that's providing this medicine for patients. So we want to make sure that laws are fair, they're safe, they're inclusive. We want to make sure that cannabis is affordable. We want to make sure that everyone has access, not just those that are lucky enough to live in a certain part of the country, lucky enough to have a certain condition that it's you know approved for, and lucky enough to have the medicine that they need available in their state. So our mission is really to create access for everyone who needs it. 
Super important. I think that's really interesting. Something you said there, Debbie, it's like closing that gap in between the regulation and the implementation of the laws. Because it's not always like, even if it's a good law, it doesn't mean that it's necessarily going to be implemented in such a way that the spirit of the law comes through, you know, in the program. Yes, that is definitely true. And even worse so, even sometimes after implementation, some states, which we've been finding lately, are going backwards. They're taking away priorities for patients. They're taking away access. They're taking away, they're making things harder too in some states. So we're keeping an eye. Is this when states open for adult use? Yeah. Well, even states, yeah. What we find is even states that have full medical cannabis programs and adult use programs, patients are still getting pushed aside. Their products aren't available. A lot of people are putting priority on the adult use market and they're forgetting or they're just not making improvements to the patient program. And the patient program is really important. We need to keep that patient program going and we need to keep that. That means doctor education, research and patient education as well. Yeah. It all comes down to the education, right? We talk about this all the time. Yeah. And helping to end the stigma as well. I feel like that's one of the big things that is still, especially in certain parts of the country, the stigma is still there. And that is one of the things that we're also helping to help people understand that cannabis is a medicine. It's not as as scary as a lot of people think. Yeah, absolutely. Well, very happy to be kind of involved in doing that work of breaking the stigma with you. Tell me, Debbie, our listeners, if they want to get involved, if they want to learn more about what ACE is doing, how can they do that? Yeah, so our website is safeaccessnow.org. We have a ton of free information. Everything on our website is free to download, read, to utilize, cite. We have a lot of research. We have a lot of education. We have a lot of reports, things like that, and a lot of history. The history of medical cannabis is really important. So we have a lot of history on our website as well. But if you go to safeaccessnow.org slash join, you can join us as a member. Membership is only $25 a year if you're a veteran or a student, $35 a year for everyone else. So very affordable. And we also have some business membership options and some leadership membership options, which come with like more benefits. But we definitely love having our supporters become members. Membership is really what funds us, what keeps our work going. And when you're a member, everything that we do, you are helping us with. So members are so important for us. We have a certain few uh, members-only webinars throughout the year and things like that. And just donate as well. We really, everything we do, we need donations for. Everything we have to have funding for. So we really appreciate donors and sponsors. And also, we understand not everyone has money. So if you just want to sign up for our email alerts, you can also just sign up for our email alerts. We send action alerts. We make it really easy for you to advocate. We write letters that you guys can use and send to your state legislators. We try not to bother you too much with our emails. We do a monthly newsletter and then a few action alerts and things like that throughout the month. All right. Well, a bunch of different options there. We're going to put all these details in the show notes so that everyone can find them. And I guess we'll talk to each other again in season three. Yeah, can't wait. (laughs) All right. Thanks, Debbie. Bye.
I'm Alana Goldberg. This episode of the Cannabis Enigma podcast was executive produced by myself with production assistance from Dr. Cody Peterson and Ed Weissman and edited by our friends at We Edit Podcasts. If you enjoyed the episode, feel free to like, rate and share. It helps other people find the podcast and it's really nice for us as well.